This is Mike Levitt, a co-founder of the Accountable Care Learning Collaborative. Our nation is faced with two very important, but sometimes competing priorities. We have a duty to provide the best possible health care for every patient, but we must also remain competitive in a global marketplace. That's what value-based care is all about. Our challenge is to create a uniquely American system of health care. Truly, we're in a race to make value work. Welcome to the Race to Value, a weekly podcast hosted by Dr. Eric Weaver and Daniel Chipping of the Accountable Care Learning Collaborative. The ACLC is a nonprofit organization focused on accelerating industry readiness for success in value. With its competency-based framework for health value, the ACLC is working with healthcare organizations all over the country to create the workforce of tomorrow. Come join Eric and Daniel as they engage the executives, clinicians, and entrepreneurs who are leading this race to value. Race to value listeners, this week we have an episode on the topic of finding scale and population health through retail-based primary care. In recent years, the role of retail and healthcare has grown beyond the co-location of clinics and pharmacies, with many large retailers now expanding their care delivery practices to include full-service health centers, telehealth offerings, and home delivery of pharmaceuticals. Retailers like Walmart, CVS, Amazon, Walgreens, and Target are all pursuing a healthcare strategy. And the opportunity to bring consumerism to the forefront in healthcare has never been more promising. And these retail companies are looking to deliver consumer-centric innovation in a way that the traditional healthcare system simply is is unable to. In addition to the provision of a high-touch technology-enabled primary care delivery that's part of an existing brick-and-mortar facility, they're also thinking about how do we make healthcare more convenient and more familiar to patients. And these companies have begun to leverage other assets, including online platforms, robust supply chain and delivery infrastructures, and access to capital to grow their healthcare offerings. So this episode is going to be a pre-recorded virtual summit that was part of the Population Health Colloquium event. And, you know, Daniel, I just think these guests are absolutely outstanding. So I'm real excited to have our listeners um, learn from these amazing thought leaders. Eric, I completely agree. I'm so excited to introduce Marcus Osborne, Senior Vice President of Walmart Health. Mr. Osborne's worked with Walmart for more than 14 years and has served in roles at the retail giants such as VP of Payer Relations and Senior Director of Business Development for Healthcare. Joining him is the one and only Dr. David Nash, founding Dean Emeritus and Dr. Raymond C. and Doris N. Grandin, Professor of Health Policy at Jefferson College of Population Health. Dr. Nash is internationally recognized for his work in public accountability for outcomes, physician leadership, and quality of care improvement, and he's one of the nation's foremost experts on population health. And finally, we have Daryl Moon, the founder and CEO of Orion, a company that gives employers control over the ever-increasing costs of the healthcare benefits they offer their employees. 
Daryl will provide additional perspective on the healthcare needs of large self-funded employers and the importance of massively powerful primary care. Wow, that is a power player list, Daniel. So let's go ahead and hear from them, Marcus, Dr. Nash, and Daryl, as they join us this week in the Race to Value. Gentlemen, thanks for your time today. I'm really looking forward to our discussion. Thanks, Eric. Great to be here. Awesome. Well, before we get into the healthcare and retail specifically, I want to talk about the consumer experience. The traditional American healthcare system has been one of the least consumer-centric models ever developed in a capitalistic economy. All of the actors in healthcare, from doctors to insurers to pharmaceutical, pharmaceutical companies, they work in a heavily regulated, massively subsidized industry full of structural distortions. They all want to serve patients well, but they also behave rationally in response to economic incentives that these distortions create. Accidentally, but relentlessly, America has built a healthcare system with incentives that inexorably generate terrible and perverse results at times, incentives that emphasize healthcare over any other aspect of health and well-being. It emphasizes treatment over prevention, and it disguises true costs. It favors complexity and discourages transparent competition based on price or quality. And that result is uh, created this generational pyramid scheme rather than sustainable financing. And that, most importantly, it removes consumers from this irreplaceable role as the ultimate insurer of value. And these outcomes are tragic. I mean, we, we've heard healthcare is the number one cause of personal bankruptcy, medical errors, that they're the third leading cause of death in our country. And I want to talk about workforce and how to deliver a better consumer experience here in a bit. But let's talk about the structure of the system and what needs to be reformed to align incentives to support a more patient-centered model. Dr. Nash, can you provide some initial framing on this concept of population health and how this movement to value better aligns with the consumer experience? Wow. Well, first of all, great to be together. Great to see Marcus and Daryl as well. And Eric, thanks for your leadership at WGU and your partnership with our college. And uh, just wonderful to be back for the 21st annual Population Health Colloquium. I wish we were together. That was the plan. But here we are virtual once again. Well, you, you just listed all the woe is me about our system. I'm sitting in my office in downtown Philadelphia. I am uh, literally three blocks from the Liberty Bell, Constitution Place, Independence Hall, where it all started. And Philadelphia is a sort of the poster child. Just let's take a moment to review what you described. So of the nation's top 10 cities by population, we're either five or six, depending on whether Phoenix and Houston are counting. Uh, but we're the poorest city in the nation of the nation's top 10 by population. So what, what does that mean and what does it have to do with what we're talking about today? Well, because we're the poorest on a per capita basis, one out of four people in our great city of 5 million lives in poverty. One out of four. Of those, half of those live in what Uncle Sam calls deep poverty, which is a euphemism for they can't feed their children, they can't put food on the table for themselves. So poverty in the United States has sort of exemplified in our great city. If you are poor, you're sick. And this is in despite the fact that our town has five academic medical centers, including my own, Jefferson, where I've been 
for the last 31 years. So we got to find a way to reconcile how can we have five academic medical centers? Healthcare is the number one employer in our town. How could we have that situation? And one out of four people living in poverty and whose health status is sort of dreadful. Philadelphia County, there are 67 counties in our great state of Pennsylvania. Philadelphia County, where we're all located here, is the least healthy county in the Commonwealth of Pennsylvania. We're number 67, dead last. So now I'll try to answer your question. You know, So population health, what the heck is that? Our college, when we opened the doors to our school on September 9th, 2009, 9-9-0-9, easy to remember, we were the first such named college population health in America. There are now more than a dozen. There are now more than 40 divisions of population health in across America's medical schools. And in the last 20 months, Eric, I, I don't have to explain what's an epidemiologist and I don't have to explain every damn day what's population health, but let's go through it just for the purposes of our conversation, set the tone and the platform. So we got to give credit to Dr. David Kindig, our colleague, uh, still very much alive and working at the University of Wisconsin in Madison. His 2003 paper, I mean, that's unbelievable, 18 years ago, his 2003 paper in the American Journal of Public Health asks the question, what's population health? And here's the punchline. Basically, it takes a much broader view of what the difference between health and health care. Philadelphia is all about health care, the delivery of health care services. Population health is what are we doing to keep people healthy? Prevention, nutrition, reducing poverty, getting rid of structural racism, reducing disparities in care, all the things that the pandemic shined a bright light on all of these issues in our great city. And it's just a very sad situation. So population health essentially takes into account what we've come to call the jargon of these social determinants of health, like poverty, crime, education, and all the rest. But you can't improve the health of the population if they're not engaged with you. So what do we know about that? Well, sadly, 40% of all women in America over 18 are obese. Let's do that one more time. 40% of all women and a third of all men. So are they engaged in their own health? Smoking, 13% of Americans, 25% of Philadelphians. Appropriate therapy for hypertension. We get it right at the best places half the time. In our great city, five academic medical centers, we get it right about 20% of the time, meaning even if you're getting care for high blood pressure, you're not at an appropriate nationally recognized goal. I could go on. So imagine, let's go back 20, 22 months ago. Imagine if our city, Philadelphia, were healthy and we had much reduced levels of obesity and hypertension and poverty and better education and 400 homicides so far in 2021. Imagine if we could wipe all that away and then the pandemic strikes. So we would have uh, saved a lot of lives if we were a healthier population. So to answer your question, we got to engage with the people who were trying to improve their health. If it's all about delivering healthcare services, well, then engagement, education, access isn't all that important, sadly. 
But if we want people to improve their health, we have to find a new way of doing it, a new conversation. Perhaps it's the Walmart clinic, maybe. Perhaps it's employer engagement, maybe. The evidence so far that those systems are contributing to improving health is pretty modest. So we have a big challenge. Our topic, retail-based primary care, the next generation, uh, we got a long way to go here and we got to reduce friction in the system. I'm grateful that Daryl and Marcus are here to bring us up to date, but here's the punchline. You can't improve the health of the population unless you're engaged with them and educating them and improving access. So those are the things I hope we'll have a chance to talk about. Well, I was thinking as we talk about retail-based care delivery and to improve population health, I'd like to engage you all on some of the lessons that we can apply from industries outside of healthcare. And one book that comes to mind, I read it in the early 2000s. It was by Fred Lee called If Disney Ran Your Hospital. And it was very influential in my thinking. And it posited that health systems should focus on what can't be measured when assessing quality, in effect, how the patient defines quality, what their perception is on how they're treated as a person and not by the way that they're treated for their disease. And it advocated for a focus on courtesy in the healthcare setting above efficiency. And Marcus, you and I had a conversation months ago and they reminded me of this important lesson. And we were talking about how in healthcare, we need to help patients manage their care journey and it's gonna require a new type of professional. And you called it the professionally nice person or PNP role. And the PNP would not require deep clinical expertise per se, but it would really be a person that excels at optimizing the patient experience and delivering personalized service and the emergence of a personal care assistant and home care would be an example or the role of care navigators and that we're seeing in some health plans. Uh, can you describe this uh, PNP role and how this could be leveraged along with technology to help guide and direct patients to the most appropriate care setting in order to ease pressure on clinicians having to be involved in every step of the care management process. And, and in healthcare, how can we make sure, gentlemen, that we make care more personalized and we really put customer service as the primary focal point in care delivery? Yeah, so I think there's probably two things I'd, I'd highlight there. One is just taking a kind of step back we have a severe supply and demand challenge in the U.S. that we just fundamentally don't want to recognize. In some ways, I, I'm sort of baffled. There have been these times in which we can go back to the mid-90s. There was a sort of push for these primary care-centric models, a kind of reemergence of primary care-centric models, by the way, that sort of what those, those companies that formed in the 90s all, all went under within 10 years. Now we're sort of back, and, and there are all these companies, and many of them are ones that I, that I know and I love, and I think they're doing great work. There are some that are value-based companies focusing primarily on the Medicare Advantage populations, doing you know full risk models, using primary care-based approaches to care and opening centers across the U.S. You have others that are delivering, doing digital first models that sort of put primary care at the center. But the fundamental reality is this, the chronic disease, as Dr. Nash talked about it, is, is rising in America. Our demand for care is only expanding, yet the supply of primary care physicians is actually diminishing. And I think this was kind of frightening number that I think it was maybe more than a third of primary care physicians are over the age of 60. And if you think about then 
I don't suspect they're going to work until they're 120. I mean, so if you assume that all that group is going to retire in the next 10 years and that we are only graduating a few thousand primary care physicians, the idea that we're basing are hoping that the savior of America when it comes to, to care and management of, of chronic illness and other things in this population is is a population that is diminishing seems absurd to me and should seem absurd to the system. I think secondarily, so what you've got is is as a providers who are largely inaccessible to the population. I would also tell you, and this is sometimes hard for I think providers to want to acknowledge, providers often the problem. I would actually say, if you were to ask me what is the biggest issue that we face in our system today, it's variation in care. It's the fact that we look on in our own associates on the orthopedic side that in a given year, more than half of the people who are being recommended by their providers for hip and knee replacement or spinal fusion, in the end, we find that was inappropriate or unnecessary. We know that north of 80% of C-sections in the United States are inappropriate or unnecessary. We know that uh, the stents being placed in people from a cardiology perspective, that the vast majority, 90% of those might be unnecessary. We know that with cancer care and treatment, more than half of the people, the, the, the treatments that people are being put on are, are inappropriate or unnecessary. You see inappropriate kind of unnecessary care occurring everywhere. You see poor quality care occurring everywhere. This variation challenge is a very significant issue. So you think about, well, how do you solve for it? How do you say if, if your goal is to ultimately help people get the care they need and feel supported, not in an episodic way, but in a longitudinal way. How do you do that? Whether we like it or not, we're going we're gonna to have to lean into technology and innovation in a way that we may not have, be comfortable with, but we're going to have to lean into technology and we're going to have to rely on different types of professionals. And this is where you kind of were going. You think about this concept of a professionally nice person, an individual who is trained around really two things about being at service to the customer, one, and two, being able to use innovation and technology to serve that customer from a care perspective. And increasingly, we're seeing that the, the, the fact is there is more innovation and technology emerging every day that when used well, can fundamentally and significantly improve the health of Americans, particularly the, those who are often underserved. The challenge is what's the mechanism with which we sort of connect that technology to the, to the person who needs it. And so that's where I think often this idea that we'll make consumers, that we'll just sort of put it all on an app or we'll put it all on a website and you'll just sort of engage it directly. That's not how this works. What people are wanting is they're wanting additional support and care. And so I think this PNP model is one that we can see be successful. In. And I think there are examples that are already playing out. I think in many ways, the train has left the station on this one. You see the rise of the community health worker model and where CHWs are being used, and to Dr. Nash's point, are being used in a lot of care delivery models to, to support those individuals who have chronic illness, to also address uh, social determinants of health and other needs. We, we've seen the CHW model, for example, successfully deployed among the Navajo population in New Mexico and Arizona, and the impact it's had on their their health and, and around health responsiveness. But even in Boston, you've seen sort of uh, National Hospital and, and Brigham Women and Harvard Medical School and 
that group uh, using grad students around a new uh, technology-enabled disease management programs that were far more successful than any physician-centered one. I think you're going to see more of this. I think our challenge is not so much around getting consumers comfortable with this. It's actually getting the system comfortable with it, meaning convincing providers and health systems, convincing the health insurers to say, this is where it needs to go and not to kind of fight it um, and not to view it as uh, potentially competitive with what you're doing. I think what it really demands is a reimagining of everybody's role in the system. I often hear the kind of analogy of the primary care physician is the quarterback. I'm, no, they're not the quarterback. I don't want them on the field. I don't even know I want them to be the coach. Maybe at best they should be the general manager and they should be managing the team who's actually impacting those who need care. And so I think that what it really demands is a reimagining of everybody's role in the system and getting everybody to kind of up their game. Well, Daryl, I know you have a lot of views on the future of healthcare, and you've talked a lot about massively powerful primary care. And I think this is also where you're going, Marcus. You look at enablement of technology and redefining roles and the system getting comfortable. But the system really has to get comfortable with having a better relationship, a more optimal relationship um, with patients. And this relationship-based healthcare model, it's one that addresses emotional healthcare needs. It engages individuals and in ownership of their own health. It really spans the relationship beyond the brick and mortar of the clinic or the hospital and really reaches the patient in their homes. I mean, to your point, Daryl, and we're going to talk about it in a bit, but this is the term that you use a lot, this massively powerful primary care. And it's predicated on the system evolving away from volume-based fee-for-service and more towards value-based payment. And it drives also the human heart of systems design so we can repersonalize care in a way that honors the unique individual and the larger whole. And so I, I wanted to land uh, on this a little bit, gentlemen, this concept of relationship-based care and how we no longer look at healthcare as strictly commoditized or informational. It's that partnership with patients and, and clinicians that when we provide our providers the time, the space, the tools to understand the unique hope and dreams and, and the fears of the human being that's in front of them, and it also gives them time to recognize that no person exists in a vacuum, including the caregivers and the family. It's a unified effort in really guiding good health outcomes. So, Daryl, can you provide maybe some initial response to this concept of consumer-centric retail-based care delivery where we can provide clinicians the tools and autonomy to achieve outcomes that matter. I'd love to get your perspective on that based on your background and your thinking on how we can empower the relationship as we drive relationship-based healthcare within a massively powerful primary care model. Thank you, Eric. It's a pleasure to be with both Dr. Nash and Marcus. I couldn't agree with both of them more. And when we talk about massively powerful primary care, we don't talk about a primary care physician that can do 100 push-ups. <laughs> we talk about a relationship-based healthcare. As you know, Eric, I used to run hospitals, ran 10 different hospitals across the country, and became very disillusioned with the fact that here I sat at the top of the food chain, where 40% of all the dollars are spent, and I had absolutely no alignment with my customer. I said, how in the world can the largest industry in America get away with not focusing on meeting the customer's needs. That's business one-on-one with every other industry. And it's because there's this huge misalignment. In healthcare, for some reason, it's all about where the institution of medicine, where, where all the knowledge lies, all the wisdom, 
when you fall off the cliff, come to us and we'll fix you. And the system makes a tremendous amount of money doing that. When I was born in 1960, healthcare represented 5% of our gross domestic product. Today, it represents almost 20% of our gross domestic product. It's the only industry that keeps bulging and getting better while every other industry has to get smaller to make room for this out-of-control industry that's focused on just making money, fixing people when people fall off the cliff. <laughs> it's, it's so frustrating. So I left the treatment site 25 years ago to say, how in the world can we put barriers and fences up at the top of the cliff and signs that says, hey, there's a hairpin turn coming ahead as you roll down the mountain road, <laughs> slow down, and, and a barrier to keep people from falling off the cliff instead of just building hospitals at the bottom of the cliff to make money fixing people. Well, uh, about a year ago, after spending 25 years in this area and really driving engagement and creating relationships, I came across the best healthcare system in the world. And it was amazing to me to learn that the best healthcare system in the world was built focused on what the customer wanted. So a group of native Alaskan tribes up in Alaska, 20 years ago, I had the opportunity to build a brand new healthcare system from the ground up. They're now recognized as the best healthcare system anywhere in the world, superior outcomes at half the price. And they did something that no other healthcare system has ever done. They simply went to the customer and they said, what do you want? And the members, the 60,000 tribe members and the tribal leaders said, we don't want a paternalistic healthcare system that tells us what to do. We want a healthcare system that journeys with us and actually partners with us, respecting our values, respecting our cultures, respecting our customs, respecting what our goals and aspirations are, and journeys with us to help us take ownership in our health. Instead of just being there when we fall off a cliff and to try to fix it, we want a healthcare system that journeys with us. So they had the tenacity <laughs> when they inherited from the Federal Indian Healthcare Services System a whole medical team. They said, we're going to build a healthcare system around what the customer wants. And these physicians who are trained in the traditional American healthcare system said, we don't know how to do that. We were trained to be diagnosticians and to produce perfect treatment plans. And they had the tenacity to say, well, then take a hike, because we're going to build a healthcare system around the consumer. So what they did is they basically built a team, not one, but a team of providers, primary care physician, a nurse case manager, a medical assistant, a scheduler, and they assigned them a few members of the population, not thousands, but they said, look, you're assigned to a group of people, and your primary job is to build relationships with each one of those members you're assigned to. That's more important than getting the diagnosis right. That's more important than creating the perfect treatment plan. It's more important that you influence through relationships and trust, people's taking ownership in their own health and supporting them to do that than it is to just simply fix them. So the reason the best healthcare system in the world grew is because it grew out of this concept of relationship. They build a massively powerful primary care system where they assigned a team of providers, only a few members, and their primary job was to build through relationships, genuine trust. And when you ask the people that are a part of this system, what do you love about this NUCA system of care? They say, I have a very small team of people that I know, I've known them for years, I trust them, 
and I can call and talk to them anytime, 24-7, and they will, for me, represent all the health care I need. They will be the key to getting me all the specialists and coordinating all the care, but I have a team that I trust. And I know that they know my personal situation. They know my aspirations. I've been involved in them with them because they're helping me take ownership of my health. And now when I need something, I just pick up the phone and I access them. And they give me all the help I need. And then you look at, well, what did they do to build the best healthcare system in probably the most difficult environment anywhere? Well, in Alaska, here they're taking care of people that are in villages across the largest state in the union. And they build a retail type environment where within all these villages, there were these nice people like Marcus talks about. They were trained to be physician assistants where they could have personal in-person relationships, but they were overseen through these virtual primary care physician teams. They even had retail vending machines to prescribe drugs or to dispense drugs that were monitored by pharmacists that were overseeing through cameras, whether the person was taking or not. It's an amazing system of how they built healthcare around the convenience of the person, not around where the institution of medicine come to us when you fall off a cliff and we'll fix you. And therein lies the real foundation of the way healthcare should work. Marcus, is there anything we could learn from that NUCA system of care that might be applied in the retail-based primary care model to really create better outcomes for communities? I love talking about this, and a lot of times people don't really get this, but what the thing that I was sort of struck by is the very basic design principles that they were using to create solutions. And what I, what I mean by that is sort of often the, the traditional approach here in the U.S. is is a sort of balanced interest concept that says if you want to create a solution that really works, you have to make sure that the solution you're creating balances the interests of all the groups involved. So it's the patient and the payer and the provider and the product manufacturer, right? Pharma and device. And there's a there's sort of, you step into that, people are like, oh yeah, they'll nod their head and they say, that's right. Like if I can create a solution that works for patient and works for United or the Blues or works for Ascension or Mercy or HCA or works for Pfizer or Merck or Sanofi, then that I got challenged people like, step back from that. That's actually patently absurd. Right. Like that, that is an absurd design principle. It, that would be like in retail saying the very best retail solutions are those that balance the interests of the consumer and the retailer and the manufacturer. So what it basically says is P&G and J&J's and Walmart's and Amazon's interests are equal to that of the consumer. What I would tell you is if you took that stand as any one of those groups said, my interests matter more than the people who buy my products, then guess what? You're not going to be around in one or two years. But in, in healthcare, there's enough kind of structural reality that, so I think what's actually interesting is, and in my mind, what I actually have to tell people is, as you go and look at the solutions that really have worked in the US system, what's really interesting about them is whether they intended to or not, they did take a kind of consumer only design approach. They said, how do I build something that actually works for people? And the irony of that, often in doing that, they ended up being good for the payer and the health planner. They ended up being good for the provider. They ended up driving medication adherence, which was good for pharma. So I actually think probably the biggest, I mean, there were a number of things you could do, but I think it is something fundamental, what Daryl described of how about you try when you think about creating new solutions as you're trying to address a challenge or a problem, instead of using the traditional design approach that most everybody used, use the one that says, I'm going to put everybody else to the side. I'm going to use put the providers and the payers and everybody else to the side. 
how do I build something that really just works for the customer, for the consumer who, who needs the care? What does that look like? How do I solve for that? And, and then do it and then see what happens. And I think if more people were doing that, I actually think that a lot of the challenges that we face today systemically in terms of cost and inappropriate care and the like, they don't become as much of a problem as you think they would be. At least in my mind, it, it starts in, at the basics, at the design level. Well, let's talk about another systemic issue. And I wanted to engage you, Dr. Nash, specifically on this concept of health equity. We've had racial disparities in care for quite some time, but the pandemic has really brought a heightened awareness for the systemic problems that we have in our system. And, you know, a lot of that is tied to social determinants of health. That's widely stated that about 80% of a person's health and well being is determined by what happens outside of the healthcare system. And there's a growing body of evidence that suggests that it's the zip code that you live in that's actually more important than your genetic code when determining health outcomes and life expectancy. And where you live directs your health in a number of different ways from exposure to air pollution and toxins to accessibility of healthy food to green space to medical care and on and on and on. And there's a subtle indicator that socioeconomic factors that are inherent to health and longevity include race and income. And the cities with the widest gaps in life expectancy are those that are segregated by race and ethnicity. So I'm I'm thinking about, as we're talking about finding scale and population health with retail-based primary care, you have a model like Walmart that there's 11,000 stores and employs more than 2.2 million people and it serves hundreds of millions of people per week. And 90% of Americans live within 15 miles of a Walmart location. So this idea of access and being able to reach individuals in all zip codes and maybe creating a system or a model of care where you might address some of those disparities, that's a really interesting concept for me. So Dr. Nash, I wanted to ask you maybe if you could comment on the importance of social determinants of health and population health and how this applies to the retail-based model of care. And, you know, Marcus and Daryl, I'd love to also hear you both chime in as well with regard to what Walmart's doing, Marcus, and then to wrap up the question, maybe what self-funded employers should be thinking about in terms of population impact at scale. Dr. Nash, I'll go ahead and hand it over to you. Great, Eric. Thanks. Let me just highlight what I heard from Marcus, because he said one of the most important things, which is unexplained clinical variation. I mean, if you could pick one thing only to tackle to fix what's broken in the healthcare system, that's what I would pick even before I tried to tackle the social determinants. And that's looking inward, looking in the mirror. That's all clinician driven because we do what we're trained to do. And the numbers about unexplained clinical variation as it contributes to waste and harm are irrefutable. And about a third of what we do out of three and a half trillion dollars is of no value and even harmful, as Marcus alluded to. So we we can't underestimate how important unexplained clinical variation is. Back to the retail situation, and of course, Marcus and Daryl could give you the details. You know, I'm concerned about keeping the wealthy healthy, people who have access to a Walmart, who could pay the fee, even if it's modest. So I think one of the many challenges the retail space is going to have is tackling this notion that we're just keeping the, the wealthy healthy. In Philadelphia, in the pandemic, Jefferson did an awesome job of mounting our telehealth and digital health platform. It was actually built way prior to the pandemic. But what did we find? 
well, people of color didn't connect to us for all kinds of reasons. They didn't have the bandwidth. They didn't have an iPhone. They couldn't afford the fee. So while it sounds great, it had a lot of on-the-ground challenges. Part of those pesky social determinants was the fact that our telehealth strategy fell flat in many zip codes. So let's go back to the connection between zip code and life expectancy. And as you said, Eric, we've been promulgating for 12 years that your zip code is more important than your genetic code. No one understood what we were talking about on September 9th, 2009. But if you look at Philadelphia, where again, it's a great story as it relates to the, the size and scope of the disparity. So for example, if you're born in Society Hill, a very nice zip code, two blocks from where I'm sitting, you're anticipated life expectancies 88 years. If you go to a church in North Philadelphia where I'm going to be this afternoon as part of our community outreach, uh, you know, life expectancy in those five zip codes is 68. So 8868, a 20-year disparity in life expectancy, principally 80 plus percent of it due to those social determinants as we've been talking about. So if you want to tackle, for example, improving cardiovascular disease in the zip codes with a life expectancy of 68 years, you're just not going to hand out a pill to improve hypertension. You, you got to go way upstream and talk about nutrition and obesity and the epidemic of diabetes, both type 1 and type 2, the food deserts. Those social determinants drive the clinical outcome and contribute to the 20-plus year disparity in life expectancy. So we've been talking about in our college, uh, go upstream and shut the faucet rather than mopping up the floor. Mopping up the floor is five academic medical centers doing caths, doing open heart surgery, doing all the things we do, instead of going upstream to say, whoa, wait a minute, it's all about nutrition, food desert, education, engagement, handing out community health workers armed with iPads to do education, this is the grunt work on the ground of population health management, population health engagement. So it's awfully hard. Let me close with another observation before Marcus and Daryl. We're in the midst of a research project studying the for-profit social determinant of health industry. Let me set this up for a moment. It's very relevant to our topic here today. We're a subscriber to a great outfit in New York City, very quickly called CBI, CBI, who's a Wall Street Equity Research Center, a pretty amazing group. Anyway, with their help, we're looking at the for-profit SDOH industry. At the moment, uh, we count almost 70, very discreet, 70 for-profit, equity-backed SDOH companies trying in each of their own ways to tackle some of the issues we're talking about today. So that's a, a uniquely American approach to tackling social determinants. I'm not disparaging these companies at all. Some of them are our partners in our work, but it is amazing that there isn't a national strategy other than improving access under Obamacare. You can't argue that there's some kind of national strategy to tackle the social determinants. So it's up to the private sector once again and if you believe, like I do, of the evidence that $1 trillion is wasted, well, let's try to reallocate some of that $1 trillion 
and apply those resources to the social determinants, that might be another way to tackle this problem and to go upstream, shut the faucet rather than mopping up the floor. So disparity in life expectancy is a very real thing, especially in a town like ours. And how we engage with patients, maybe it'll be in the Walmarts of the world. That would be great. Maybe it'll be real employers who are turned on to actually improving health instead of, you know, giving me a $250 check because I went to the gym 10 times. I mean, that's absurd. That doesn't contribute to health. There's no research evidence to support any aspect of that. So I'm hopeful that we could tackle these disparities. But Eric, speaking personally, I'm on the other end of this mountain now. You know, I don't have a lot of time left. So we've got to get busy working on these problems. That's how I would uh, view this current situation. But back to Marcus and to Daryl. Yeah, Marcus, how is Walmart Health uh, thinking about SDOH? The way I would think about it is this, is that it's actually sort of a recognition of something by the system of something that that we as individuals have understood for a long time, which is the concept of health and wellness is a much broader concept than the than the way the traditional industry had characterized it. That it is about food, that it is about my ability to get up and move around. It's it is about how well I'm sleeping or not. It is about how much stress and anxiety I'm dealing with in my life, right? It, so I think it's always been kind of front and center of what we're doing. But you know, you asked kind of earlier in the question how we think about it, not just as a retailer, but as as an employer. I mean, we have the largest self-insured plan in the United States. And I'm sort of mindful, as I think about solutions, one of the things that is important, and Dr. Nash went there, which is how do you build things that don't, you don't do them in such a way just so they make you feel good that you can check a box. They serve examples. I, I give you 250 bucks because you went to the gym for six months. Like, yeah, we've seen no, there's no data, but instead design things that are built off of a real understanding of how we as individuals behave and how you do things that actually influence my behavior as an individual. And that that sort of understanding, deep understanding of consumers is often not applied. And I think is demanded if you're going to create solutions that actually have impact from an SUH perspective. And I'm sort of there's an example of a program that we launched for our associates a number of years ago. It was called ZP. It stood for zero pressure. And and the kind of interesting fact about it first was there were more people who lost 100 pounds and kept it off for years on that program than all the other weight management programs combined that we had ever thrown at our associates. So that's the interesting data point. So here's the fact about it. It was not a weight management program. In fact, if you went and read anything about it, you would never see the word weight or management anywhere. It was a storytelling platform. And it basically said if you you share a story and the story, you could make a little money if you told a really great story as determined by your peers, you're you might get 100 bucks or 250 bucks, but it was predicated on two really interesting insights about us as individuals. When we do something we're proud of, we want to tell people about it. It's the Facebook effect, right? The, this sort of fake life we all live on Facebook or on social media where we want to tell people that we're always on vacation or our kids are the best in the world and, you know, so smart and so athletically gifted and whatever. That's the sort of story. So, If you're doing something you're proud of, you want to share it. The second thing is we're all voyeurs. We all want to know what our neighbors are doing, what they're up to. We want to peek in their windows. We want to see what they're eating. We want to see what they're watching, right? So you put those two things together, and we basically said, create a platform where you could, if you're, tell us what you're doing to live a better life, and we're going to promote it and share it to those people that you interact with, meaning in your store, in your community. 
Before you knew it, we had more than half our associates engaging, and they were really interesting stories about things that people were doing. And there's the, the one that people kind of grosses people out, but we love to tell it because it's a, it's a good one. Was this one of our associates? It's, it's called the Lick a Chip story. So this was a woman who was eating a full bag of Lay's chips every day. So she decided she needed to lose some weight. She was going. She was committed. So what did she do? She would still buy that bag of Lay's chips. It's not very environmentally sound, but she would instead of eating them, she would take a take them out and lick them. Now, if you're telling me, if you're a doctor, say they're still getting a lot of sodium. Yes, but she wasn't eating the chip. So fast forward, she used that as her first move. Fast forward 12 months later, she's lost 60 pounds. Within 18 months, she lost 100 pounds. She's kept it off. She still to this day licks one chip a day as a reminder about where she started. And our point was, how come nobody, you know, you've got Weight Watchers and all these other, like you've got healthcare or medically driven weight management programs. How come nobody's launched a lick a chip program? Because what was interesting is how many other people read that story and said, I could do that if I can still lick a chip every day, but you know, I'll, I'll give up that bag of chips or I'll give up. And what we've started to find was it's things like that, you know, this sort of idea of creating programs that enable people to do things in the way they want, but empower them to do it, that you you kind of allow them to promote and be proud of what they're doing, but then also reward them for those successes where it makes sense. That's where you can generate a lot of benefit. And so I use as an example that I think increasingly you're going to see the rise of solutions like that that are about really empowering you to make small decisions that ultimately end up creating huge value. So I think for us, that's that's a lot of we're, we're using that as the mantra, which is it's not about big programs. It's about how can I help customers and associates make small changes and engage in, in things in small ways that ultimately generate big wins. Daryl, I'd love to hear some of your perspective as well with your work with employers. Any stories there about patient engagement and some success? I could not agree with Marcus Moore. What he just said was so incredibly important. You know, he used three words that I'd like to emphasize. He used behavior, he used influence, and he used storytelling. And those three are, in fact, the void we have to address. If you look again at the best healthcare system in the world, superior outcomes at half the price, the NUCA system of care, that's what they did. They built an entire system around the idea that what people do, their behavior, their lifestyles, and certainly social determinants of care or of health impact those largely. But that is 70 or more percent of what results in our health. What we do as a healthcare system to someone has a minor influence in many cases. It's what we do to ourselves that makes the biggest difference. So the best healthcare system in the world just simply said, then let's put tremendous resources and focus the healthcare system on that part of the equation, which healthcare doesn't do. Healthcare doesn't address the biggest part, the biggest void. And if healthcare systems really did that, they'd do what Marcus just said, they'd realize that people's behavior is at the root of almost 90% of all healthcare costs. And the question then becomes, how do we influence that behavior? Well, it has to start with relationships. And there's nothing more powerful in building relationships than storytelling. In fact, the best healthcare system in the world, they use that term over and over and over, and they train every single member of their team how to build relationships through storytelling. And when you think of that in an employer's perspective, and you say, well, I'm a large employer, or I'm even a small employer, and I'm trying to build, or I'm trying to buy 
an aspirational type healthcare system for my employees where they're being influenced and they have relationships and where they're actually addressing the, you know, the, the underlying issues that create costs, then you stop trying to put all your eggs in one basket. It's really about changing the way the buyer buys healthcare more than it is to change the healthcare system because the buyer creates the demand. And what we're seeing is, in fact, one of the largest consortiums of Fortune 500 companies is in a, in a strategy right now to build this massively powerful primary care system into the way they purchase healthcare by saying, we're going to be willing to pay for subscription models of primary care. And we're going to put money into that. And we're going to be willing to pay those subscription models instead of fee-for-service, RVU, analytics, I think, where the more procedures I do every day, the more I get paid. They're going to put money into subscription models so that every member has a family medical model type team of primary care people that they can access because they believe that that's the foundation of healthcare. And when you then couple that with not just I'm here to treat you, but going back to the whole relationships and through teaching physicians and primary care practitioners to be coaches and to bring in health coaches who are influencers and can help create that community of support, all of a sudden, you as the buyer says, okay, I'm going to put money into catastrophic care, like a major medical plan. I'm going to also, though, put part of my money into this subscription model of primary care. And if you don't want to take advantage of this far better system for yourself, fine, don't get the money. And then I'm going to set money aside specifically for you to have someone who supports you in taking ownership in your health is there to build that relationship that you can trust. And I'll even get part of that money to you as an incentive to have that kind of relationship. You don't have to, you don't get the money, but it's not about giving people money to do a simple task. That's what the wellness industry is built on. And it doesn't work. It's about incenting people to go build a relationship and have a long-term relationship that, with someone who can help you make those small incremental improvements over long periods of time. And then put money into a medical savings account that can roll over a year, build up, and can pay for those deductibles and co-insurance. So that strategy of the employer saying, this is where I'm going to put my money. Now let the industry come provide, you know, I'm creating the demand. Let the industry now provide the supply. But I'm going to build aspirational healthcare benefits for my employees by saying, this is what matters most. And it's so exciting to see major corporations beginning to embrace this concept of, we're going to put our money into building aspirational benefits. If the best healthcare system in the world is an aspirational healthcare system, then I'm going to put my money into building a design that produces that for my employees to have a healthier, more productive workforce that I can attract and retain. Well, I wanted to shift gears for a moment, gentlemen, and talk about price transparency and how important it is in a consumer-driven model. We've seen over a 10-year period from 2009 to 2019, increase in healthcare spending by $1 trillion, which equates to $11,500 per person. And by some estimates, and I mentioned this earlier, two-thirds of personal bankruptcies are due to medical bills. And clearly, the healthcare cost increases are, are unsustainable for individuals in the U.S., and price transparency is really an important lever to slow cost increases. It'll, in theory, provide downward market pressure um, if we had a fully transparent model. And, you know, Marcus, one thing I like, I love about Walmart Health is that you're really focused on bringing accessibility 
affordability and transparency to primary care. I mean, patients can go and, and get treatment for their chronic and acute illnesses, but the first thing they see when they book an appointment is a, estimates of the costs. And the website lists all the prices for care, and it takes the guesswork and complexity out of the transaction. And uh, Walmart accepts insurance, uh, but patients sometimes are better off just by paying a, a, a flat cash fee because they don't have to pitch in co-payments or satisfy any plan deductibles. And whatever a patient needs, he or she at Walmart Health, as I understand, knows the price up front, which is a huge departure from how healthcare usually works, where it's really cryptic, it's hard to navigate, and then you get blindsided by unexpected high out-of-network charges or something like that. So Walmart is legendary for squeezing out costs out of business processes and taking advantage of every lever to bring the price down for the consumer. So I wanted to ask you, just in the with the Walmart philosophy of save money, live better, how does that apply to the transparent model of, of consumer-driven healthcare? Yeah, I mean, you, you hit it. I mean, here's one of the kind of more egregious realities in the in the system today, that if you, if you ask average American, healthcare is is often dependent, you know, if you look a year ago, five years ago, 10 years ago, 20 years ago, healthcare is the top concern. There are maybe moments in time where some other issue kind of comes up, the economy or jobs or other things, but healthcare has been sort of top concern. You ask the question, what, why, why are people so stressed or angst ridden about the, the healthcare system? It is the sort of perceived lack of affordability, the inconvenience and inaccessibility of the system, the complexity and the lack of service in the system. And so what's bad about that? Well, the bad thing about that is if you look at it almost universally, every American says that they are deferring, delaying, or not getting the care they need because of those factors. And so if you believe that helping people get the care they need actually is ultimately better systemically because it will improve health and reduce cost, because when you push things downstream, that usually means things explode on you, right? It's the same thing about your automobile. If you say, oh, I can't afford to go in and get that kind of 50-point check and get my oil change, get my tires rotated, I'm going to hold it out. And then you do it, you do it, you wait, and next thing you know, your engine explodes on the highway. Well, that's it's a much different cost. That, that is sort of the U.S. healthcare system in a nutshell, in my mind. And if you go back to those issues, though most people don't want to acknowledge it, and people will say, oh, well, I'm not surprised Walmart talks about cost and affordability because it's, you know, you're the save money, live better guys. Well, we talk about it because actually, if you look at the data, Affordability is the single biggest issue that Americans are saying is causing them to defer or delay care. And so for us, what we find is it's, it's not just the cost of care, it's the perceived cost of care. And when you go back 15 years ago when we launched the $4 generic program, what was really interesting about that was it wasn't just that a lot of the people who we started to engage with were people who weren't getting the prescriptions filled. We did see a ton of people who weren't, who had not been getting prescriptions filled that were showing up. And they and they would say it wasn't because of the actual price. It wasn't because, wow, it's $4 and I can now afford it. Though for some people that was the case. It was actually that that for the first time they knew what the price was and what they would tell us is before I would go in and I would get the script, I would get this new script from my doctor I was almost afraid to bring it in because I didn't even want to know what it might cost me. So they weren't even going in. They were saying, I, even if they had a $25 or $10 or $5 COVID, I don't want to go in because they might tell me it's going to cost me $300 and I can't afford $300. And it's embarrassing to tell that pharmacist, I can't afford the medicine I need for myself or my family. So for us, what we said is 
okay, part of the value of transparency is not just about making things affordable. It's making making sure that the price is known so that you can go in and say, this is the care you need. You can make the decision before you go in, can you afford this care? You don't really need to know what your insurance will cover or not. And, and so I think that for us, that, that was really critical in the model. When you think about uh, bringing access to the basic things, not not the more complex things, but the basic things we need. I, I think that things like primary care, I think things like teeth cleanings and vision screenings, I think sitting down with a therapist dealing with my depression or stress or anxiety is basic. I think if I've got knee pain, being able to go sit with a physical therapist and have them help me assess my issues and put me on a plan, I think that's basic. This is not complex care. This is basic stuff. That those basic things, the more we can make people feel comfortable that you can afford this, that the price is known, and certainly you should think about your insurance as something that might even help you make it more affordable. That'll increase the likelihood that people engage today and don't defer and delay. And so that's really been a lot of our focus is, is attacking those challenges that are causing people to feel like they can't get what they need in the moment, because we think if they can get what they need in the moment, it'll often make the system operate better. So uh, there's a question I'm just dying to ask here, and I want to tie the retail model, Walmart Health, with what employers are, are thinking about. I mean, we have a 157 million Americans that are covered by employer-based health insurance. Walmart has 2.2 million of those as the largest employer in the country, and you have $530 billion in cost associated with just poor health outcomes. And that's on top of the $880 billion that employers spend in premium dollars. And I know Walmart, as a, a self-insured provider of insurance, you're thinking about curating narrow networks, lining with centers of excellence like Cleveland Clinic and Geisinger Health and Mayo Clinic for complex uh, procedures like back surgery that are no cost. You'll fly the employees there, cover all the out-of-pocket costs, travel expenses for the patient and the caregiver, and you're getting outstanding results. And you know that's one great example of an employer-based health in innovation. But I wanted to tie that to the retail model for a moment. Everyone looks to the kind of the failure of Haven, which was the the JV between Amazon, Berkshire Hathaway, and J.P. Morgan Chase. As you had three of the highest profile, best run companies with 534 billion in revenues, and, and they couldn't figure it out. And I just wanted you all to chime in on: Are we going to see retail power players like Walmart, like Amazon, expand beyond providing just massively powerful primary care and telemedicine and virtual care to actually building an individual insurance plan that captures all the elements of a aspirational healthcare model that you talked about, Daryl? Are we going to see something like that where employers may, at some point, even get out of providing insurance to their employees and providing a subsidy to get into an individual? marketplace that's provided by a, a very big retailer. Daryl, maybe you can tackle that. And I, I'd love to get you all to chime in. I think it's a great concept uh, and something really interesting to talk about. Eric, you know, I, I, I feel pretty strongly that that is the direction healthcare is going. In fact, if you look back historically and you figure out why do we use this employer-sponsored group model or health insurance model in this country, it really happened at the end of World War II, when the War Labor Board said, freezes on salaries. A year later, the IRS said you can offer benefits tax deductible. And within 10 years, we went from group health insurance, not even existing hardly, to where over half of Americans were on an employer-sponsored group health plan. And for the last 75 years, employers had no other solution. 
than to simply buy a group plan. And because there's all these levels between the actual CEO who signs the check and the actual providers, there's this huge misalignment. Everybody in the system's working against the guy who writes the check, but it's so far removed that it doesn't even get recognized. Well, this employer-sponsored group health insurance, I think has a lot to do with why our healthcare system is so expensive. The system's working against the customer. Well, when the government passed the regulation a year and a half ago, almost two years ago, that introduced the ICRA, which is the first piece of regulation that allows individual coverage HRA, health reimbursement account, first piece of, in, of regulation that allows for an employer to still get all the benefits of offering health insurance, but takes them out of the middle of having to choose which plan to buy. And it simply says, I'm going to put money into an account an ICRA, and now you go use that money to buy whatever works best for you. Now, it has to be a qualified affordable care plan. It has to be an individual plan. And because of some pretty huge megabusters, Amazon has had on their strategic plan for a number of years now to not just provide massively powerful primary care, which is what Amazon Care is today, but to actually produce individual health insurance plans that they can offer their Amazon Prime members that are consumer-centric, aspirational in nature, build around the customer, and cost significantly less. With 100 million members, the influence they can have on this system is bigger than all the Blue Crosses put together. And when you produce individual plans that are far more patient-centric, and you've got an ICRA that allows employers to still get all the benefits of attracting and retaining employees, we will see a mass migration away from employer-sponsored group health insurance to employer-sponsored individual health insurance. And I truly believe that the big megabusters like the Walmarts and the Sams and the Costcos and the Amazons, those who have these huge membership groups, who it's all about bringing membership and value to their members, they will really supersede the Bucas, the Blue Crosses, the Uniteds, the Sigmas, unless they get on board. Because I think we're moving away from employer-sponsored group health insurance to employer-sponsored individual health insurance. Marcus, what would you say to that just as an overall trend and, you know, what Daryl explained? Is that something that, that you're seeing as well in the future? I think, honestly, there are very few employers who would raise their hand and say, I want to be in the health insurance business. In fact, I bet I could, you could find none. <laughs> Instead, <laughs> so you take that, but what you also couple it with, but at the same time, Investing in the health and productivity of my employees is critical to the success of my business, to my ability to recruit and retain and enable my sort of workforce to be successful and productive. And so this idea that you just completely kind of walk away from it, there was a lot of sort of chatter about that. This is one where I don't know that I entirely see around the corner quite yet, but I hear I hear what's being said, which is, you know, as an employer, this isn't working for me, but I can't get out of it entirely. Is there an emerging new middle ground? So yeah, so I I think what Daryl describes seems reasonable to me. And, and I, I, I do want to make one quick point, and this may sound strange coming out of my mouth. It is interesting to me how many people characterize Haven as a failure. I think it was a wild success. I agree. I think it was an unbelievable success. There was work that was going on there that those three groups then sort of took on themselves. Just you wait and see. The impact from that effort will continue. In my mind, it was sort of the massive mischaracterization by the industry and others to say, we conquered those. No, you didn't, right? <laughs> like, if you, think you beat, if you think you beat those three groups, no, you did not. The learning that came from that effort, that, that was a, as much of a learning exercise as anything. And by the way, 
what, what it showed was what we've learned and what we want to go do, there may be better approaches to do it than the way we structured it. And so it's better to not throw uh, good money at bad at some point as well. But I have to sort of tell people there was a lot that was learned that, frankly, we learned from that that has, has, is informing things that we're doing. And so I, I actually think that was uh, not a failure. I think it was a massive success. And the fact that it it kind of threw a gauntlet down in an industry, particularly among kind of health insurers and the health plans and ASOs, it sent a statement. And I think that statement is still resonating and will continue to resonate for a number of years. I think Europe is an incredible example what happens when employers get out of the middle of choosing a catastrophic major medical plan for their employees? And because in Europe, all that's taken care of through social medicine, the well-being and health and productivity solutions far outweigh and are far beyond what we have in this country. It's amazing to see what employers do to improve health and productivity and engagement and connection to their company and culture when that choice and the purchase of group health insurance is out of the way. And I think there's great opportunity for this country to see a much greater emphasis from employers on that when you do take the catastrophic medical out of the term, you know, for the employer. And just simply say, look, I'm going to put so much money into a bucket. Now you go choose what works best for you. And now I'm going to put my money into improving health, well-being, do things that are going to better attract and retain employees, build a better culture. And that's where we want to go. That's where employers should be spending their money and their time. Is there anything you would add to that, David? Yeah, well, we'll see. In a uh, post-pandemic era, I think employers right now are focused on uh, what's my vaccination policy, what's my testing policy, what's my stay-at-home policy, and this is a great conversation, but has taken a uh, back seat, maybe a third or fourth row seat to the pressing issues of getting people back to work. The number one thing employers could do today is to get everybody vaccinated. That's the number one thing. Everything else is secondary. And Walmart, my goodness, if Walmart decided that every single associate must be vaccinated, that would go a long way, especially in rural America, to helping us conquer the pandemic. So you want to talk about contribution on the margin? That, that's the most important contribution. I, I definitely agree. And that might be a, a good place to kind of land the plane here, gentlemen. Any parting thoughts post-pandemic? Hopefully we're getting there soon. How should healthcare organizations be positioning? And, you know, and Marcus, what do you see in terms of retail-based healthcare and where we might see an inflection point coming out of this COVID-19 pandemic? Well, actually, I think in some ways, this is where the, the pandemic, some of the things that occurred from a care and care delivery perspective during the pandemic are, act, uh, are, are going to massively propel some of these trends and this kind of movement to this, to this new approach. And you, you call it kind of retail-based, but I, I, I view the world as one that is omni-channel in nature and omni-channel in all things, not just in healthcare and retail and financial services. I don't care what the industry is. It's omnichannel. I don't mean multi-channel, meaning I don't mean in healthcare. I don't mean physical sites of care, be it at retail or not. But I don't mean just telehealth. I don't mean de digital health. I don't mean care in the home. I mean all of those things, but actually coming together in a fully integrated experience for the consumer that actually enables me to get care in a way that no one channel by itself could deliver. I think actually what we've seen is COVID 
has massively uh, redefined two things. One is it's, it's, it's given exposure to patients, to consumers, to some of those other channels. We've seen engagement in telehealth, increases in digital health. But what it also has done is started to make, which I don't hear as much talk about, it's made providers and professionals much more comfortable in engaging across all those channels and engaging in what is today a multi-channel environment and which will be in a future an omni-channel environment. And so if, you know, I tell people, if you want to bet on something, bet on those people who sort of figured out how to deliver omni-channel, who are, who are focused on omni-channel care delivery and are starting to do it. I mean, I don't know that anybody's doing it well yet, but those who are placing bets, who are trying things, who are at times failing, but getting back up, place your bet on those groups, because I think those are the ones that are going to redefine healthcare in, a, in America and globally um, going forward. And I think, again, COVID has helped. Well, thank you, gentlemen, for joining us today. I've really enjoyed our conversation. Uh, you know, this, it's a great honor to spend time with you, and I'm so excited for all of you attending the Population Health Colloquium. Any parting thoughts in the 10 seconds that we have? <laughs> Go upstream and shut the faucet. Stop mopping up the floor. <laughs> Love it. Relationships. Great. Thanks again, guys. Great job, Eric. Thanks so much. Thank you.